three-month wait this time. I'm Gavin Scott, and we're back with a new episode of A Journey Through Stock Aiken Waterman. And it's one that brings us full circle with the very first episode we released almost three years ago. Isn't that right, Matthew Denby? It sure is. My memories of the very early days of this podcast are inextricably tied to Hazel Dean because she featured in a whole bunch of our very first episodes. Of course, she was Saw's first ever UK top 10 act with the amazing Whatever I Do, Wherever I Go back in 1984, and she went on to release a long string of singles with the boys. Hazel was also there in 1988 as Saw rose to their commercial peak with Who's Leaving Who also cracking the UK top 10. So, as the boys turn another fateful corner in 1991, it's very fitting we encounter Hazel again. And of course, if it wasn't for Hazel Dean, this would be a very different podcast. She was our first interviewee on the show, and if she hadn't have said yes back at the height of COVID, before she was hashtag retired and fabulous, who knows if any of you out there would even be listening to us. Yeah, Hazel saying yes to that very first interview opened the door for all of our other guests since, and this episode we'll also be hearing from Jason Donovan, Pat Sharp and Mick Brown, and Karina and Emma from Delage, as well as some of the former PWL team. Yes, we've got four singles to discuss, only one of which was a hit sadly, and we'll get to that at the end. But first up, in terms of chart positions, it was a bit of an anticlimactic end to Hazel Dean's career with Saw in March 1991 when she released her version of Better Off Without You. That was Better Off Without You by Hazel Dean, which got to number 72 in March 1991. And this was her first single since Love Pains, which was produced by Harding and Curnow and had been her first release on Lisson Records back in August 1989. And that was a sizable gap between releases. For this second Lisson single, she was back with the PWL A-team, Saw Themselves. And if there's one word you can use to describe Stock Aiken Waterman, it's frugal. Actually, there are lots of words, but let's go with frugal for now. They were never ones to let a good song sit on the shelf and languish, or even sit on an artist's album as an album track when it could be a single. Waste not, want not. That was the case here with Better Off Without You, which started out as a track on Lonnie Gordon's If I Have to Stand Alone album in 1990. Let's listen to Lonnie's version now. Matt, do you think it was a good idea to give this song to Hazel to record? Well, I understand why it might have annoyed really hardcore Saw fans, as well as the artists concerned, but the truth is that the Lonnie album was a non-starter in the UK. It wasn't even released there, so that's a bunch of strong songs just going to waste. Anything written for Lonnie was probably going to be a fairly decent fit for Hazel, because they're both quite powerful vocalists with a dance floor fan base. And let's not forget that song recycling isn't something unusual in pop. Motown did it incessantly with some pretty amazing results. Yeah, I don't have a problem with different artists recording the same song. It's always fun to hear the individual interpretations and how Saw would adjust the song for each artist. Lottie's version was very of its time with a spin on the Woo Yeah sample and a bit of a darker feel. Hazel's version would not have been out of place on the Always album. It feels very of that time, which perhaps wasn't ideal in 1991. But there's no faulting her vocal. She really taps into that mix of emotions, kind of defiant but also disheartened. I think she does that really well. I have a lot of time for both versions of Better Off Without You. We'll hear from Hazel shortly about what she thought of getting better off without you. But as we mentioned back in episode 64, Hazel reportedly came close to recording another tune that went to Lonnie. If I Have to Stand Alone. According to a 1991 article in Dance Music Report, and I quote, 
Hazel fell in love with If I Have to Stand Alone and was understandably disappointed when the song went to Lonnie Gordon instead. Now you might recall back when we discussed Turn It Into Love that that was the first of two occasions where Hazel released a Saw song and shared it with another artist in the stable who also released their version. Let's hear what she has to say about it happening a second time with Better Off Without You and her thoughts on why the single might not have taken her back into the top 40. So you mentioned it happened to you twice. Was the second time better (laughs) off without you? Yeah. (laughs) Miss Lonnie Garden. (laughs) I did have a little run-in with with, uh, Lonnie a long time ago at Nay's Benefit and and she came into the dressing room. I can't remember what I said, but she said, um, how does it feel singing one of my songs? (laughs) And uh, because at the time, I can't remember what what the story was, but I can't. uh, I knew it hadn't come out in the UK. I can't even remember what I said to her because it, you know, it didn't really bother me that much. I loved my version and I loved that song. Um, so I didn't sort of, I didn't worry too much. I was a bit shocked when she <laughs> said it, but we're great mates. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you can't sort of live your life worrying about things like that. So I don't, <laughs> but it did, it did shock me at the time. I mean, once again, they were quite different versions. Yeah, I'm sure they were. I, I actually have never heard her version of that song. Now, Better Off Without You came out 1991, and so yeah. that was a few years since you had worked with Stockake and Waterman. What was going on in, in that period of time? Well, music trends were changing, weren't they, um, at that time? And um, I think that, um, you know, the, the, the whole sort of Stockake and Waterman thing, they weren't obviously selling as many records or whatever was going on. Um, I, th- I don't think, uh, I think Pete was sort of thinking, oh, you know, where do we go from here sort of thing. I, I think I don't know about their, much about their relationship. I think Matt had already left. I think, I think a lot of it was to do with the music trends, their records, this weren't happening. You know, I think that was to do with it. But for me, I remember in 1989, and I always say this to people, the record for me that I, I thought this is, music trends are definitely changing was Ride on Time. Right on time, right on time. It was such a different record from anything else that was going on. And for me, that was that was the pinnacle record for me that was uh, things are going to change. Music trends are changing. I remember that right at the end of 1989 and um, things were changing. And I, um, yeah, after Better Off Without You. I mean, if I'd have had that out in the 80s, Better Off Without You, I think that would have been a hit. That's such a great song. Bill Harding has given some insight into the attitude towards Hazel at this point in her career, writing in his book PWL from the Factory Floor that an overhaul for the new era was not on the table. Quote, I think our concept for her in the building was, no matter what, we're still making high energy records with Hazel. Maybe there was a resistance that we couldn't see, or Pete Waterman couldn't see Hazel's voice on a house track. I think Pete resisted it and just had this perception that Hazel was the high energy queen. Hazel probably wanted to do something more house and they could only see love pains and better off without you, unquote. Harding and Kerno got to play with Hazel one last time too and the result was the B-side, Are You Man Enough? Let's have a listen to that. That was Are You Man Enough? Together with the A-side, Better Off Without You, that single would end up being Hazel's final work with The Hit Factory. Right, well, that 1991 Dance Music Report interview with Hazel gave some more insight into her feelings in the direct wake of this release, and she was pretty frank about her urge to evolve and what was behind that. Quote, Times move along, you know. It's quite sad, really, but sometimes you have to make changes in order to grow. Unquote. The journalist who wrote that piece asked Hazel if she felt the PWL sound had gone stale, to which she replied, Perhaps in my case, yes, but one can't really say that in general. Kylie and Jason are all over the charts, and they've still got a penchant for coming up with staggeringly good songs. If Pete comes up with a new one just for me, of course I'll record it, unquote. The article then concluded by noting, quote, In the meantime, Hazel says that she's through with hand-me-down tunes. Let's see Hazel's more recent thoughts about the end of that relationship and what she moved on to next. So, yeah, things things were really changing. Stuff was changing at um, 
at uh, PWL. Matt had already left. I left in early 1991, and, and you know it was all amicable. It was no, no one was. I wasn't. Um, I still still friends with Mike. I'm still friends with all of them, really, and Pete and Helen and all that mob down at. Uh, and I, yeah, it was it was sad actually. It was it was really sad to go, but I, I think times were changing, so it was time to sort of move off really. Were you trying different things or, or re-evaluating or taking a bit of a break? A, a little bit of all those things, really. I, I was sort of uh, knew I was, I knew I had to move on. And uh, yeah, I, I, we tried, um, we tried to um, look at maybe getting another record deal at the time, around that time, sort of, it, well, it was 1990, but I was sort of tagged with the PWL thing. And so a lot of people, they, they weren't interested, basically, you know, mm. no PWL, no. So that was the way. So I just, I just carried on working as I always have done. Always been busy with shows all over the world. So, I, yeah, I was fine. You know, I just got on with it. Really, I did a couple of little singles. I was doing a lot of writing. I was doing some writing with a guy called uh, Barry Upton, who wrote Steps' first big hit and written some things for Sonia. So I was writing with him, Ian Levine. So I, you know, still involved musically. And I started getting into a little bit of production work. I'd always wanted to have a go at that with a, with a friend of mine called Pete Ware. And so that's, we started sort of doing, we, I mean, we, we've been do, sort of doing demos and things since the 80s. So I started doing, so I started doing stuff like that, carried on doing live shows. And, and that's where I went from that particular situation. And now Pete Ware, it's interesting you mentioned him because he was originally part of Stock Aiken Waterman, basically, yeah. for those first he few was, songs. Yeah. Well, him... Matt, no, him and Mike were in a band together. They, they used to work a band together. Again, Pete is also a brilliant musician, great keyboard player and um, really nice guy. So, um, yeah, that, that sort of relationship broke down. But, yeah, he, he did some of the programming on my first, on some of my early stuff. And, um, and the first time I bumped into him, funnily enough, was um, the, the very first Talk of the Pops I ever did. He, in those days... Musician, we had to go in and re-record the backing track, Top of the Pops. And um, Peter was the musician. He was the guy who was going to do, <laughs> do the backing track. And that's how I actually first met him. So all the other stuff had gone on before me, but uh, that was 1984. So I've known him a very long time. And we still work together to this day. He worked on whatever, I think he did some programming, programming on whatever I do. And possibly that, I'm not sure if he did anything on the next one, but yeah, in those early days, he because he, he programmed. Now, it's interesting what you were saying about, I guess, being tarred by the PWL brush towards the end. You know, there was this perception of, of sore artists as puppets and, you know, Mel and Kim sent that up in that FLM video with the actual <laughs> puppets. But I never felt like that applied to you. And I think that's a combination of the fact that you were there at the start. Yeah. And also that you wrote your own, you know, you wrote your own songs as, yeah. as well. But did you feel that maybe you didn't get that backlash as harshly as some of their artists? No, I, pro- I, I, don't, I don't think I did because also I'd been in the music industry 12 years before I had a hit with Searching. So I, I mm. was, I've got a good reputation in the music industry. And also I do consider myself to be, I'm not a puppet. I am a musician. Um, I can play a bit of keyboard. When I used to be in bands, I can even play a bit of drums. And, and uh, you know, when I was writing uh, long before... Laptops came along, and <laughs> you know, I'd, I'd write with piano and just me singing and piano and stuff. So I do consider myself to be a musician, not not just a oh, puppet, if you like. But the thing is, with with, with stock, you know, with the whole PWL thing, is that you know, it was Pete Waterman, their their company, and you either went along with it or you didn't. And if you if you're not going to go along with it and fit in and do all that, then you might as well leave. That's that's the way I saw it. So that's why I never got upset about certain things because that's the way it worked. You you have to accept these things, you know. And if you want to be something else, well, go off and work with someone else. You know, it's that's how it is. I kind of I understood it all because I'd been around quite a long time before that all started. You know, so uh, I kind of I got it. Yeah, you were there at the start, and then yeah. you were there at the end. Wobbled a bit in the middle, but. <laughs> What were the biggest changes between that start and the end in terms of working with Stockhagen Waterman? 
It sounds like it was wonderful in 1984. Was it still enjoyable towards the end? Yeah, they were, because there's some lovely people at uh, PWL. So the staff and Sally that used, uh, Sally Atkins that used to look after me, they had a little management team. They were great people. You know, we did all those PWL tours and we were looked after and just had fun. You know, you've got to enjoy yourself. Just have fun. There were still good relationships at the end, but it was just sad to, to see it coming to an end. You know, you knew it mm. was coming. So that that was really sad. But yeah, I'm I'm glad that well obviously I'm glad because I had Who's Leaving Who and 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 the, and the other hits, but um and not just in the UK, but as you know, all over the world. So I think all in all, I'm I've had a great career. Now, as Hazel indicated, she has continued to record and release music until the present. In 1993, her first post-PWL release was a song called My Idea of Heaven, produced by Barry Upton, who she mentioned. I snapped that one up when I saw the 12-inch on import. Don't worry, everybody, it did have the 7-inch version on there. Let's take a listen. And the year later, in 1994, she collaborated with Eurodance project Dimension, with a Y, on Power and Passion, a track that she co-wrote. Those two original tracks were followed by a string of remixes and remakes. Then after two albums with Energize Records, In the Name Of and Nightlife, her collaborations with Pete Ware have kept her busy in recent years. Let's hear her most recent single, 100% Pure Love. It's been great to shine a light on Hazeldean's journey, not just with Saw, but also her work away from the hit factory. It's a shame she didn't have a bigger run of hits immediately following Searchin' and Whatever I Do, the dreaded number 41. Some of those 80s singles we've covered, like They Say It's Gonna Rain and Always Doesn't Mean Forever, really deserved more. By the end of the decade and into the 90s, with only one single coming out in 1989 and another in 1991, it did feel like her career wasn't going anywhere fast at PWL, which is a shame. And if you think about it, she had held her own amid the teen pop explosion of 1988, with three big hits. So it would have been good if that momentum had carried on. Despite that, there is no denying Hazel's legacy as the queen of high energy with the back catalogue of gay club classics to her name. Yeah, Hazel Dean definitely made her mark. Without Whatever I Do being a big hit, Pete Burns never would have hunted down a then-obscure saw to recapture that sound on You Spin Me Round. The Pet Shop Boys have consistently name-checked Hazel throughout their careers, and Pete Waterman always gives Hazel her due. It's not many people who get remembered as the queen of any genre, so well done, Hazel, for putting that kind of stamp on high energy. Yes, I will allow that gratuitous Dead or Alive mention, Matt. Now, you can hear more about Hazel in the bonus material. We're going to count down your votes for Hazel's best singles from 84 to 1991. But next up, a duo who were also becoming one of Saw's most enduring artists, even if they only released one Saw single a year. That's right. So next up, we've got the next single from London radio stars Pat Sharp and Mick Brown. And in true Pat and Mick tradition, it was another remake. Let's have a listen to Gimme Some, which charted in March of 1991. That was Gimme Some by Pat and Mick, which made it to number 53 on the UK chart. The original by American singer Jimmy Bo Horn is considered a bit of a classic in some circles. Let's have a listen to that. I need me some sugar And your love is sweet Oh, 
Right. Well, that song was written by Harry Wayne Casey and Richard Finch, the duo later famed for Casey and the Sunshine Band, who enjoyed five Billboard number one hits. Now, I know the names Casey and Finch, but I wasn't familiar with the name Jimmy Bohorn. His success seems to have been limited to the US charts and especially the R&B chart there. But fans of the stereo MCs should recognise something about this track by Jimmy called Let Me, in brackets, Let Me Be Your Lover, which came out a couple of years after Gimme Some. Right, connected indeed. I think we can safely say the stereo MCs were big fans of Jimmy Bohorn. They sure were. So why were Pat and Mick covering an obscure American soul record by Jimmy? Well, they weren't. Not really. Their cover was inspired by a British remake from 1977. Released by mononymed singer Brendan, produced by Jonathan King, and, importantly for our purposes, released on Magnet Records, where you might remember Pete Waterman used to work in the 70s, that glam rock meets disco version of Gimme Some had reached number 14 in the UK. So, a pretty big hit. Yeah, that sounds very late 70s UK, doesn't it? That whole glam rock thing that the Brits really took to their hearts in a big way. Gary Glitter in the Sweet. Well, I can stand Susie Quattro at a stretch, but this genre really wasn't for me. Right. Well, Pat and Mick doing Gimme Some has always stood out for me as an unexpected choice, even though the number 14 peak of Brendan's Gimme Some was actually one place higher than Gonzalez got to with the original of I Haven't Stopped Dancing Yet. Perhaps after Use It Up and Wear It Out, which had been a number one for Odyssey, had only reached number 22 for Pat and Mick, it was decided to go back to a song that wasn't so entrenched in people's minds. Or maybe Pete just chose an old favourite, you decide. I think the song suited Pat and Mick well enough. Their version is pretty fun and bouncy, and I do like what Saw did with it. It's not my favourite thing in the world, but it does the job. Let's hear from Mick Brown now about the choice of song and what was going on with the pair in 1991. 1991, Gimme Some. Gimme Some, yeah. Again, did you just get presented this is the track you're doing this year or or did you chip in ideas at any point? I think they were always um, Pete Waterman and Richard Park ideas. Uh, Gimme Some was just good. See, as well, bear bear in mind, by that time, we'd both moved off of the Pat and Mick nighttime shows. We were now now the sound of daytime. You know, this new hot rocking Pat and Mick during the day with a guy called Chris Tarrant doing breakfast and everything was like the old Pat and Mick show, but now during the day. Uh, so didn't have the same kind of oomph as the Pat and Mick show kind of stamp of approval, but we were still doing it again because it was it was basically then used as a as a promotion for Help London Child. Um, and I, I've, I always loved that song, the original by Brendan. I thought it was a great kind of northern solely song. So when uh, Pete said we're doing that, I thought that sounds great. I'll have some of that. That's good. And were you and Pat still uh, presenting radio as a duo by then, or had you had your own shows by then? Because the night shows became so successful and the sound of Capital was moving more towards that sound, they moved me down, first of all, to the afternoons and lunchtime. Then they moved Pat down to before me. So Pat and Mick again, but during the day on separate shows. So Pat, then Mick. Yeah. Another thing to note about Gimme Some is that this was the first year that Pat and Mick's cover didn't come out 10 years since the original, because both Jimmy Bohorn's and Brendan's versions of Gimme Some were out years before 1981. I mean, that had been the pattern with the previous Pat and Mick singles. But perhaps that was abandoned as it would have taken the guys right out of disco territory. This was also Pat and Mick's first release to miss the UK Top 40, which would have been a disappointment for the charity that was going to get the proceeds. But at least they had fun with the video, even if the budget had very obviously dropped quite a lot since Use It Up and Wear It Out. Now, speaking of the video, there was another point of difference between this and previous Pat and Mick videos. Let's hear about that from Pat Sharp now. All the videos looked like you were having a lot of fun, but that one had the mini Pat and Mick in the video. What do you remember about that one? 
Yeah, I remember they gave us a little Pat and Mick. I don't know why, because I don't think that Anton Deck, the big TV stars here in the UK, I don't think they'd had little Anton Deck yet, and they've they've been doing that for years on their shows. But I think that was before that, so we were probably yeah. earlier. But I don't think that having the little Pat and Mick there, that was fun. But the best video was Shaky Groove Thing, without a doubt. I mean, I don't know if that was before or after that that's, uh, song. That's still to come. That's still to Is come. Is it? Okay. I don't remember the order as well as you. I'm not as informed as you are. <laughs> but, uh, but that was the best video. Of all the videos we did, I mean, the first one was just, we just said to a bunch of kids on the radio, hey, listen, we're going to do a video tomorrow for our record. Do you want to come down and be in it? And we did that on like a Wednesday night. And like thousands of school kids all over London took the day off, played truant and came down to be in our video. And we got in trouble in the newspaper saying, encouraging children to leave school. <laughs> That was for Let's All Chant? Yeah, that's right, okay. yeah. Did you know those two kids or were they just hired? No, no, they would have been hired. I guess they were either somebody's children who was connected with the shoot or they would have been hired from an agency as little acting kids, I guess. Yeah, don't know. Uh, be fun to uh, to uh, catch up with them now and see them all these years later because yeah. they're obviously grown-ups with their own kids probably, you know? The mini Pat had his mini mullet on as well. <laughs> Yeah. And that hairstyle was, um, you, you must have been one of the most recognisable men in the UK with that hair. Yeah, at the time, without a doubt. I mean, I saw um, a tweet yesterday that somebody put up and it was literally, oh, this is like random. I don't know who this guy is. It was someone in America. Um, so I don't know this guy. This is what he wrote. And it was a picture of me with my mullet saying, I don't know who he is, but he would definitely score lots of points if he was playing ice hockey and blah, blah, blah. So they just said, this is the ultimate accolade mullet that you will ever wish to have. But he didn't know who I am. And someone had written, hey, I know this guy. He's an old friend of mine. And underneath, another guy who lives in America now called Adam Curry. He used to live in Holland, be a, quite a famous DJ, has worked on MTV in America as well. And he said, that's my friend Pat Sharp. And now everyone's commenting and go, hey, Pat, how are you doing, man? Is that really you? Did you have this? This is incredible. It kind of seemed like it, ha it had a life of its own. Was there pressure for you to keep it? Because obviously you don't have it anymore. I mean, it's a long time no. ago now. We're talking 30 years ago now. But was there a point where you got sick of it? Or, or what's your relationship like with that hairstyle? <laughs> oh, gosh, what a relationship. <laughs> I think there was a there was a point where my wife said to me, "Listen, you need to cut your hair because it's just I've had, I've had enough of it and it's quite ridiculous." And I was uh, quite grateful that that's all she wanted. So I said, "Yeah, no problem." So I kind of cut it and had it in a sort of a, a bob for a while. So it was still like shoulder length, but it just wasn't you know right down my back. And I just kind of got more sensible. And as I've moved on, it's become what it is now, which is nice. And uh, it's all there and thereabouts but it's no longer business at the front and party at the back <laughs> it's uh you know the relationship with it was that it, it was there based on the fact that when i w met my wife in norway a lot of the guys over there had that hair they were ice hockey players in scandinavia hockey hair is what it's called it's not called a mullet in scandinavia it's called hockey hair and uh the guys who had this hockey hair i thought were very cool they were quite a good looking viking you know big strong guys with this amazing samson-esque hair and it was like a lion's mane. And I thought, oh, I'll have some of that. So I bought it back. And I wasn't the only one, as you know. There's, you can take Michael Bolton or Andre Agassi or... Jason. Yeah, Jason. Yeah, of course. Yeah, every, almost everybody, to be honest with you. There's pretty much nobody around that time who didn't have one. There we go. Not since Hazel Dean was asked about Bracketgate has an interview on this podcast delved as deeply into the issues that matter. Pat Sharp's mullet getting its due attention. Isn't that right, Matt? I think it needs more, more, more attention. It really was a landmark in uh, hairstyles. It was, for sure. Now, also getting some a little bit of attention and certainly some screen time in the video for Gimme Some was our next act, with the members of Girl Group Delage popping up as dancers in the clip for Gimme Some. Not, as we'll soon hear, though, that they especially remember it. Yes, four-piece, all-female pop group Delage were back with a second stab at the charts with this song, Running Back For More. Charting, or actually not charting, in May 1991, Running Back For More didn't crack the UK Top 100, peaking just outside at number 103 
for the second lineup of Delage. As we heard back when we covered Rock the Boat in episode 64, original members Judy and Charlotte got off the boat and were replaced by newcomers Emma and Francis. But not even a new look lineup, nor an original saw track instead of a remake, nor some brightly coloured outfits in the music video were enough to help this song. Matt, what did you think of this one? Well, this is where things start to move into different territory for me, because this is one of a bunch of lower profile saw records that I had no experience of back in the early 90s. I just didn't hear it then. So I can't judge this song from how I felt at the time or how it sounded to me in the soundscape of 1991. I only became aware of this in the early 2000s when I went into a full nostalgia mode and started digging around for old gems like this. And I liked it through that retrospective lens. It's a strong saw song with nice vocals and good production. Love nice vocals on a saw record. And one thing I noticed was that it took a few cues from Madonna's Vogue, which given how great that record was, couldn't possibly be a bad thing. Right. Well, I've always liked Running Back For More. It did maybe feel a little bit like it should have come out a year earlier around the same time as Counting Every Minute, Handful of Promises, and When How Could He Do This To Me should have come out. But it still felt like 90s saw and not 80s saw. And if you were paying attention to the first part of our What Do I Have To Do episode, you'll remember I mentioned a record store called Power Station in the Sydney suburb of Bankstown. Shout out to listener Gary who messaged me to say that he shopped there in the 90s. It wasn't my local, but I went there with my friend, the one who played me music down the phone, and Power Station had a good selection of import releases, especially for a suburban store. And I distinctly remember them having the CD single of Running Back For More in 1991, and oh how I wanted it. Problem was, it cost around $20, and I could have bought four local releases for that much, and so I left it. But I did go back a couple of years later, when I was more cashed up, on the off chance that it would still be there, And it was. Clearly, I was the only teenager in Sydney wanting to get my hands on a Delage CD single. Oh, the nostalgic joy of music retail, Gavin. Yes. Now, let's hear from Delage themselves about this record and how their story played out in 1991. Emma, how did you and Francis join? How Was that just another audition process? That was another audition process. I think when Charlotte and Judy left and Karina, who's been my friend for 30 years, um, had said, we're looking for two new members of the band. And she'd hinted to Sally Atkins, the manager, that she had a friend who was, you know, a good singer and a good dancer that we might possibly be interested. So Francis and I went along to another audition process and did the same, probably the same sort of audition as Karina did when the band first formed. So, yes, we did the audition and then they liked us. We went in for voice tests to make sure that we weren't tone deaf. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, that that was was where it all sort of started. And did you know Francis at the time? No, I didn't. Okay. No, I didn't either. Right. Okay. But you knew Emma and and kind of pulled her in. So, so Emma, when you and Francis auditioned, was it the same big, you know, dozens of, of girls there? Yes. Yes, there were quite a few, yeah. And what do you remember about appearing in Pat and Mick's Gimme Some video? Pat and Mick's Gimme Some video? Oh, Pat Sharp and... Oh, Pat Sharp. Yes, Pat uh, Sharp and Mick Pat Brown. Sharp? Oh, we oh did, yes. gosh, yes. That was did we do quite, that? Can we, you find it? Is it on YouTube? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. We've never seen it. We've never seen it, funnily enough. Do you remember doing it? We did quite a lot of things like that, and it's over 30 years ago, so it's, uh, it's kind a bit of, hazy. It is a bit <laughs> hazy, I have to say. We did a lot of promotions, but a lot of it was with Pat and Mick. Yes, it was. Because they yeah. were with Stockake and Waterman. Mm. So yeah, they were. We were sort of nice guys them. as well, I have to say. Really nice guys. And we did Hitman and Her and th- stuff like that, which... Uh, that was before, that was what the boat, wasn't it? When you yeah, Pete Waterman, you know, that was his little baby and um, he made sure we were on there too. And we did gigs and actually, um, you know, when it was Delage the first time, the first gig we did was in Leeds and there was a girl band and a boy band. And guess who the boy band was? It was their first gig as well. It was Take, Take that. that. Oh, right. Wow. Yeah. I mean, the boy bands were really doing well because there'd been new kids on the block and then Take That were coming up and things like that. Do you think the audience was into more boy bands than girl groups at that stage? I guess because you were, you know, six years ahead of Spice Girls. Do you think that the UK was ready for a girl group? I don't know. I don't. I think they were more ready for a boy group. The audiences were more female. And so they started screaming from the moment 
take that walked on. Yeah. It was predominantly female audiences. So, of course, they liked them more. Than yeah. <laughs> and what kind of reaction did you get? Um, they, you know, they were very nice and they were, you know, saying, well done, girls. And um, obviously, we didn't get the screams that the boys got, but we got the applause. So that was enough for us. With the new lineup, with, with Emma and Francis in, you did Running Back for More, and it was an original song. It wasn't a remake. It was an original Saw track. What did you think of that one, both of you? Loved it. Loved it. It was... It was, looking back now, then it was current. Now it's not. Now it's, um, yeah. yes, it was typical Stock Aiken and Waterman, the usual loops and everything they use. But, um, yeah, at the time, we loved it, didn't we? We did. But I don't think the music travelled into the future. It was almost at the end of Stock Aiken and Waterman, and they'd used that same sort of, that Stock Aiken and Waterman sound for so long. And it was almost like we were on the tail end of that, and that people perhaps were getting a little bit tired of it. That could be just where I looked at it. Did you get a sense of that when you were promoting it, like the attention you were getting from magazines and radio and things like that? Did you get a sense that people were, as you said, tired of Stock Aiken Waterman? No, not really. I, at the time, we didn't know. Looking back now, it's in hindsight now that, mm-hmm. you know, I think we were getting a little bit tired of it. I think they had a little bit in, enough of that. Enough of that, and they were ready for something new, for sure. Now, some of the other songs that you were recorded at PWL weren't released at the time, but in the decades since have kind of leaked out. There was a song called Ain't No Cure, and there was another song called I Can't Wait, which was originally recorded by New Shoes a few years earlier. Do you remember doing those songs? Um, do you know what? We looked at each other when you mentioned that in your text to me, and I was like, oh, God, Emma, I don't remember those. And we were laughing because we were oh, my God, we're so menopausal. <laughs> So we remember the sides, not the B-sides, because we never listened to the B-sides. Yeah, but we did so many songs. It's hard to remember 30 years ago what we did. I've not really thought about it since because we both went into other careers and stuff like that. So, yeah, they weren't really concentrated on, to be honest. We never made videos for them. We didn't do anything like that. And I think at that point we were petering out as well. It's interesting that Karina and Emma don't recall all the songs that have been attributed to Delage. And yes, it was a long time ago, but there's always been an air of mystery about exactly how those records came together. For example, here's former PWL engineer Pete Day talking about the lead vocal on Rock the Boat. It's May McKenna singing. You're not the first person who's told me that. Well, I could hear a voice. It's May McKenna. I remember recording it. It's May. Do you know what? I don't remember the band at all. You know, I don't want to diss anyone at all, but I don't remember. I, you know, I did have a look at the video and I thought, I don't actually recognise anyone there at all. I don't remember meeting anyone at all. I don't know what, how this appeared or how, you know, what was the, the aim or the goal or objective behind it, but it's definitely maybe kind of singing. You're talking about Rock the Boat or both of them? Yeah, Rock the Boat. Now, that would tally with the fact that Rock the Boat was released as a promo 12-inch credited to Dazzle, seemingly before the girl group was put together. And so when the group was cast through auditions, perhaps some vocals were added to an existing track. As for the B-sides to both Rock the Boat, a song called I Wanna Be Your Everything, which we played in episode 64, and the B-side for Running Back For More, a song called I Wanna Shout About It, it seems they may have had limited involvement from the group. There wasn't a stack of singing on I Wanna Be Your Everything or on the single version of I Wanna Shout About It, but there is an alternate version of I Wanna Shout About It with more lead vocals. Let's hear a bit of it now. does want to shout about it someone's really putting their lungs into that one they sure are but what about running back for more the main event let's hear from backing singer miriam stockley who i spoke to before i had tracked down karina and emma and at that stage i was trying to work out exactly who can be heard on running back for more it's one of those where had you said to me please sing me the song I could not have done it had you had a revolver pointed at my head because, you know, until you played it, I would not have remembered it. Do you know anything about the situation with Delage and who we can hear on that track, Running Back For More? Oh, they are singing. Okay. 
definitely. Okay, so it's not just you and May. Mm-mm, not at all. Once again, if you listen to the multi-layering there, it mm. kind of almost starts to kind of cancel itself out. And and putting us in the, underneath them, as I say, as a bed underneath them, really makes them sound pretty good. And Mike Stock also told us Delage definitely sang, and the ladies themselves have told us about being voice tested and having music experience, so it does seem to be a bit of a complicated situation, and that situation is made more confusing by the existence of two quite different versions of Ain't No Cure. As we discussed way back in episode 43, Ain't No Cure had originally been recorded by Banana Rama for their Pop Life album. But the girls ultimately wanted to expunge Saw from that record and decided to re-record Ain't No Cure with producer Youth. This incensed the PWL boys who recorded another version with Delage in response to that snub. Bananarama eventually blinked and agreed to include the Saw version of the song on their album. But unfortunately, no one released it as a single, despite it being one of Saw's best ever songs. Let's hear the so-called single edit of the Delage version. Now let's hear an alternative version that you can hear on streaming and take close note of the vocal differences between the two versions. Right, well, with a composition this great, it's hard not to do an enjoyable version. I really like them all, including the youth version, because the song is just so brilliant. But the original Nana's version is my clear favourite. That's fairly high in my personal top 20 saw tracks of all time. Well, I could probably rank all the different versions of Ain't No Cure for you if you like. But in terms of the Delage version, I much prefer the alternate version. I find the melody on the verses of the single version to be too tricksy. I know we were in the age of Mariah by this point, but I think the song is best when it sticks to that melody heard in the original Bananarama version. Speaking of songs with multiple versions, there's apparently also a Delage version of I Can't Wait, the song first performed by New Shoes in the 80s that Kako had done a cover of with Harding and Kerno. But Delage's version remains locked in the PWL vault. Now, Matt, can you handle any more twists in the Delage story? You know I can handle everything, Gavin, so bring it on. Well, there was a Delage version 3.0, except instead of a member change, they had a name change. With the PWL thing having not worked out, they rebranded as Eden and released two songs away from the hit factory. Let's have a listen to the results of that move. Firstly, can this be love? Then keep on pushing our love. I'm seeing a theme emerging here. Neither Can This Be Love nor Keep On Pushing Our Love were able to give the girls a chart break as Eden. The latter, however, would reach the UK Top 30 in 1996 for Nightcrawlers. Let's hear from the band now about the transition to Eden and how that all came to be. And so how did Delage become Eden Was that, and why the name change? Because we went from PWL to ARS and we felt that, you know what, if we're going to go to a new place, let's reinvent ourselves. And we just thought, do you know what, it's a great name, so let's do it. And our manager, it was actually her idea. 
And we went along with it and said, yeah, okay, it makes more sense. You know, it's a rebirth, the Garden of Eden. It's where it all began. So there you go. <laughs> I wondered as well if it was a legal thing that PWL owned Delage and um, you had to change your name. Yeah, it might have been that, but that's something that Sally dealt with and we just went along with what we, she said. Yes, we, we, we were young girls. <laughs> we, yeah, we were young, caught up in, caught up in the dream. And yes. uh, I didn't worry about the legal side of anything. <laughs> no. And then the, the two singles that came out um, as Eden, uh, Can This Be Love and Keep On Pushing Our Love. Do you remember those two? Oh, yes, yes we yes, do. Yes. yes, we do. Yeah, those were ones that we recorded. Um, I'm trying to think who we recorded them with now. It's so long ago, it's hard to remember. But um, yeah, we did perform them when we went to do gigs. We went all over the country to do gigs. And we, you know, we do three, four songs and stuff like that. So we did promote them slightly, but obviously not as much as Rock the Boat, et cetera, and Running Back for More, but they were two of our singles, yeah. It felt like the Eden sound was a bit clubbier, a bit dancier than Delage. Delage was a bit more pop. Would that be fair to say? Yes. Oh, absolutely. <clears throat> Definitely. 100%. And was that a conscious decision to do something a little bit, I don't know, edgier or a little bit cooler? I think it was a natural progression. And I think for us, performing that, I think we enjoyed it more. Yeah, the Eden sound was definitely clubbier. Bit more current. Yeah. We worked with a producer from New York and he brought over a couple of songs for us to sing, Destination Here, and uh, I can't remember the other one actually, it's 30 years ago. But uh, we, what we did was we did our vocals separately. So one person would go in at nine o'clock, the next person would go in at two o'clock, um, the next person would go in at four o'clock and et cetera, et cetera. So we did uh, about three days recording there. And then we spent about a week recording in West London studios as well with another producer. So it was nice to kind of meet these people, you know, and work with different people. And that's what the manager from PWL, Sally Atkins, that's what she encouraged. And I think that helped us grow musically. And was it Bruce Forrest you worked with? Oh, yes. gosh. <laughs> oh, my God. You know everything, Gavin. Yes, I think it was Bruce Forrest who we worked with. He was the producer at uh, West London Studios. He, he was so cool. We loved him. We loved him. I think we spent about two weeks with him, didn't we? I know we had, I, I know I was in there a lot of days and we covered a lot of stuff, but he was so meticulous and he was the most fantastic producer. So, um, yeah. Oh, my God, I've forgotten his name. Yes, Bruce Lewis. And we were trying to remember his name earlier. Thank you, Gavin. And how did that compare to when you recorded with Matt and Mike? Did you do that individually with them or did, or did you all go in together with them? Oh, we all went in together with them. And the one in West London Studios, uh, we were all together in that. The one at Metropolis, we did separately. And did you have a preference? I like when we were all together. You know, we, we cheered each other on, Gavin, honestly. It was just lovely and encouraged each other. And I think, you know, we were a team. Thank you, Karina and Emma. Okay, three songs, zero hits. It was time for Saw to bring out the big guns. Yep. Well, he'd been Saw's biggest selling act of 1989, and Jason Donovan was ready for a pivot in 1991 after a relative decline in popularity with his second album. Kylie Minogue's successful dance reinvention was probably also an influence because when the time came to release a new single, Jason threw away the guitars and left behind the sedate numbers that dominated his last album campaign. Let's hear the results. That was RSVP by Jason Donovan, which charted in May 1991, returning him to the top 20 with a peak of number 17. This is exactly the type of song I think Jason Donovan should have been making in 1991. I'd actually go so far as to say it was exactly the sort of song he should have released in 1990. In fact, you'll hear me say that to a few people soon. You know, I love Hang On To Your Love and Another Night, but they didn't push Jason forward enough as a pop artist in the way that Better The Devil You Know did for Kylie. 
Even though RSVP is more dance-based, and we know that isn't really where Jason saw himself as an artist, it felt like a necessary step for me. If you wanted to be a pop star in the early 90s, this is the sound you needed. New Kids on the Block realised the same thing when CNC Music Factory were brought in to remix their tracks around this time. To me, this is much more immediate than anything on Jason's second album. But hits aren't just about strong songs, they're also about the moment, and the moment was clearly not on his side by this stage. Smash Hits slated this record as dated, and with Jason one of the few sore artists to still get decent exposure in the magazine by mid-91, he had to face the inevitable questions about the producer's recent chart fortunes. Jason told Smash Hits, I think that people's tastes tend to move on, but that sound is still successful. If you listen to records like GLAD and Don't Worry by Kim Appleby, those producers have taken a lot from Stockade and Waterman's sound. But their new stuff is very different from the Rick Astley days. It should of course be noted that Don't Worry had been co-produced by George DeAngelis, who did a lot of keyboard work for Saw, and the single version of GLAD had been remixed by Harding and Kurnow. It's a shame RSVP didn't rise higher than number 17 in the UK, like those Kim Appleby tracks had. It not only had a great A-side in RSVP, but the single came with a brand new B-side that is among Jason's best. Just how far can I go for the chance to Yeah, When I Get You Alone might sound more like old Jason with its classic Dave Ford mix compared to the more cutting-edge RSVP, which was mixed by Phil Harding. But as a sore composition, When I Get You Alone is wasted as a B-side. Let's go now to Mike Stock to hear his thoughts on RSVP and the work he'd done with Jason in the 90s. RSVP did feel like a big step for Jason, a bit a big change. Was that a rethink of, okay, Between the Lines, you know, did well, there were hits, but it was no 10 good reasons. Was it a feeling like, okay, we have to reinvent this wheel? Uh, oh, God. Uh, you do ask difficult questions, Kevin. Because <laughs> I think at the heart of it, there's uh, RSVP didn't necessarily have to have been Jason here, because I think Hang On To Your Love did. You know, we, we thought of him entirely in that basis. But I think RSVP was more, slightly more, teenage orientated and could have been big fun could have been you know do you know what i mean uh, yeah so uh, but we, we we were being too many people starting to have opinions you see and that's that and that's what you get you know it's when you design a horse by committee you end up with a camel and also what year was that can you remind me that was that was 91 i mean just for, for my yeah. two cents worth i actually think rsvp is, is what he should have been doing in 1990 maybe yeah you're probably right but like I say, everyone's got an opinion. And oh, yeah. I, I wanted to point out here that Matt was himself edging out mm-hmm. of our production team. And I remember he was he very cursorily put guitar work on that album. He was not happy to be there. He was fitting it in between his motor racing and whatever else was interesting. And there was I remember it was me and Karen Hewitt actually sitting there on those sessions trying to finish trying to bring it together and i was kind of feeling i was having to book matt like he was a session player at that point which is a bit and so there was not much collaboration going on there was pushing and pulling on the business side from david Housen, and i don't even think pete was showing much interest but everyone just wanted an album out there you know so i look i think in 1991 the everything we'd built was starting to lose footing you know the footings were dropping away so if if that's not sounding too depressing (laughs) the trip to the dance floor wasn't the only sign of change for jason the video for rsvp was notably more mature and even a bit shall i say sexy clearly the kylie strategy had not gone unnoticed yeah like the song itself i thought the video was just what jason needed it took him away from being a clean-cut young cliff richard style pop star to being more of a, dare I say it, foie type of heartthrob. Side note, I was chatting to a listener in the US who had never heard the term foie before. Let's hear from PWL stylist Sharon McPhillamy, who knows all about foie, and she's going to talk to us about the RSVP video. 
And then by the time RSVP came around, and that was quite different. Oh, I loved that shoot that we did with the pink setting. I loved that. We did that in a park in London. And he was, he wanted to be a little bit more flamboyant, which at that point, you know, we could do because he was already, he was himself. So he could play dress up. And that was, that was great fun. I loved that. And he loved it. Was that the first time where you'd kind of pushed things with Jason a bit? Yeah, but it was from him. He, that was when he wanted to do it. So, you know, I mean, my directive came from my bosses at PWL, but also my directive had to come from the person that was going to wear it. So we would have had a meeting and this is what he wanted to do. So by then I had my contacts and I could do it. I could bring the clothes in and he could go through and see what he wanted. So we would do it together. It wasn't me saying, oh, you put this on and you put the frilly shirt on. It was a collaboration always. It did feel like, and musically as well, RSVP was a step forward. I, I feel mm. like I, I really like his second album, but it did feel a little bit like treading water. Yeah, it was. Whereas Kylie was off doing Rhythm of Love and yeah. and it felt like RSVP was like, right, let's step the music up, be a bit more adventurous and let's step the image up. Yeah, and I think that's what we did. So Doing Fine kind of started it. Even though, again, that was a stylized video because it was that kind of Beatlesy, that kind of 60s thing. That was the kind of road toward RSVP. So that was the change. Mm. Yeah, that was the final single off that yeah. second album. And I yeah. think, if I'm assuming correctly, but it feels like it was, a, okay, we've got to mix things up a bit because the singles weren't doing as quite as well. And No, um, because I think kind of the phenomenon had died down by then and if you had been there at the beginning it was honestly insane it was like being with a beetle him more than Kylie more because it's girls and they would scream and and climb over you to get to him it was frightening terrible so by then I think the phenomenon had gone away a little but of course Kylie's style was still ascending so there was that kind of imbalance at that point but um I think it's probably true to say that at that point PWL had definitely taken Jason to where he was going to go to and that would have been that was going to be it and so I guess things like I'm doing fine and RSVP were an opportunity to test new things mix things up test test things out and mix things up a little bit yeah And I thought they were fun. I thought they were great. Great insights from Sharon, as always. Love her front row perspective of how the tides were turning. With the phenomenon of Jason Mania slowing down, the pop press and teenage girls everywhere were already looking out for the next big thing. And Smash Hits in particular decided that the future sounded just like this. That was The One and Only by Chesney Hawks, which hit number one in the UK for an astounding five weeks in mid-1991. Time would eventually prove that Chesney wasn't quite the new Jason, but the press at the time decided that his rise was the final blow for the old guard of pop. There was even a story saying Jason had Chesney's face on his wall as some kind of grim reminder to up his game. For his part, Jason said it was just there as a joke. I still can't believe that the one and only did absolutely nothing in Australia. Such a great pop moment. It was even a hit in the US. But yes, for a second, Chesney Hawks with his cute curtains haircut and that little mole on his face was everything. But while Chesney might have been the new teen heartthrob for a little while, Jason was making a considered move into his next career path. Let's hear from him about that now. 1991 RSVP, which I love. Yeah, I love too. Huge fan favourite. It was a bit dancier, which I know wasn't your thing. Were you happy with that direction? I love that record. I mean, it wasn't quite as you know punchy as Hand on Your Heart or Better the Devil You Know, or, or but I really loved exploring that. I loved the video. I I thought it was sort of 
made me feel cool <laughs> you know, in that world. It made me feel cool. And to this day, even though, again, it's not the greatest vocal performance in my life, it just was, it's a great record. I just think it's, yeah, and had a little bit of house in it too, you know, had a little bit of that sort of that flavour at the time. I mean, I wish they'd done something like that with you almost a year earlier. Yeah, yeah, maybe, and maybe you're right. But again, if they'd given me the records a little more up front, because those type of records do require good vocal performances, they do, you know. And it's really important that whilst pop happens in the moment like it did for me in 99, and all those kids went out and bought my record, even if I, you know, just snored on it, you know, um, I, I think... For radio stations to gain the momentum of, of just a one-hit wonder or a one record or one album wonder, you need to start showing your skills. That's why, again, Joseph became the moment for me that changed a lot of things because everyone's like, okay, wow, that's, that's really interesting. Even though it was, it was a pop sort of light character, Joseph is not Sweeney Cod, <laughs> you know. Right. Well, Jason spoke more about his daring move to the stage in his book, Between the Lines, My Story Uncut. There he spoke of his desire for a credible, Happy Mondays-influenced musical makeover after a decent breakaway from the spotlight and a rest from what he felt was overexposure. But apparently neither his manager nor Pete Waterman saw that as a real possibility. Jason wrote, I wasn't really convinced that a leap into musical theatre was the right move for me to make. For starters, I did wonder whether I would be able to carry it off. Although my voice was improving, the thought of standing up there on stage every night and singing live was daunting to say the least. And I also wasn't sure whether I wanted my career to go in that direction. But my manager Richard saw things differently. Knowing that I was nearing my shelf life as a pop sensation, he wanted me to go back to my first trade, acting, and he saw a stint in a West End musical as not only the perfect bridge between the two professions, but as a showcase for my talents. Dad sided with Richard, unquote. Well, Dad and Richard were right because Jason's chart slide was dramatically ended with his next release, his first non-source single, which went straight to number one in the UK. Let's hear Any Dream Will Do from Joseph and his amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. The world and I We are still waiting Still hesitating Any dream will do Ah, uh, who doesn't love a kiddie choir? It worked for Tina Turner, Pat Benatar, Kids in the Kitchen, who Aussie listeners will know, and Jason Donovan. But it seems not everyone's a fan of that ballad cliché. Well, Pete Waterman wasn't a fan of the Kitty Choir for one, and he said in a few interviews that he saw that as the beginning of the end for Jason on the pop charts. Pete wrote in his book, I Wish I Was Me, quote, The concept of a teen pop star turned Happy Mondays fan who was worried about overexposure playing the lead in an Andrew Lloyd Webber musical was the oddest one yet. It seemed to me that one of the main attractions for Jason was that he was getting paid a lot of money. As far as I'm concerned, when you put children on records, you're not Happy Mondays. Can we pause to consider what a Happy Mondays style Jason Donovan single might have sounded like? I guess the closest we ever got was I'm Doing Fine, which threw back to the Beatles instead of the other retro influences that you could hear in Manchester tracks. I'm sure Saw could have made a decent attempt at something more indie for Jason, but is that what anyone, Jason aside, really wanted? I think the move to the musical theatre arena was a much more sensible idea. Yeah, that's a trippy notion, isn't it? <laughs> and another trippy notion is one which we're going to talk about right now. Jason's move to the stage offered one of the strangest what-ifs of the Saw story. After Andrew Lloyd Webber approached the team to write several songs for Jason's run of Joseph. Mike Stock and Pete Waterman have very different recollections of why it never came to be, and guess who had the more colourful version? Pete wrote, We decided against writing any songs for Jason for Technicolor Dreamcoat because they seemed even simpler songs than Saw ones, and there certainly wasn't any sort of Happy Mondays element. We'd been to a meeting at Andrew's London house and had bizarre discussions about camels, while Andrew played us some prospective tunes that really didn't impress Mike and me. It just wasn't a project that we felt excited about. 
So we let Polydor Records, who were behind the whole thing, buy Jason out of his contract. But those were certainly some of the most peculiar weeks I've ever spent in my life, unquote. Mike Stock wrote in his book, The Hit Factory, we had a meeting with Sir Andrew at his house in Eaton Square and agreed to write songs to go in the show if we had the rights to release the singles. Lloyd Webber agreed in principle, but when we came to do the deal, he informed us that Tim Rice objected. He thought the show was perfect and didn't need any updating. We'll hear more about Jason's contract with PWL ending when we reach Happy Together, the very last Jason Donovan single in our journey. And while I think of it, I wonder if they were like, okay, we're not going to give you Happy Mondays. How about Happy Together? (laughs) Closest thing he could get. But in our very next episode, we will be discussing another bona fide smash hit from the Hit Factory. Yes, it's the fourth song in what might be the most perfect run of pop singles in my lifetime, and possibly yours. It's Kylie Minogue with Shocked. Yes, a big episode to look forward to. Until then, we're going to count down your favourites of Hazel Dean's 13 singles between Searchin' and Better Off Without You in the bonus material. Head to chartbeats.com.au slash to listen to that or to subscribe if you haven't already. Also, before the next episode, come and say hello to us on social media. Yeah, come and see me on Threads and on X. Just search for Matthew Denby and pop over to my burgeoning YouTube channel where you can see Gavin and I interviewed on Australian TV and my review of I Should Be So Lucky, the musical. And you can come and say hi to me on Instagram and Threads at ChartBeatsAU or the ChartBeats of Journey Through Pop page on Facebook. I'm not doing X, I just can't. Anyway, we can do the next episode of A Journey Through Stock Aiken Waterman in a couple of weeks' Time. Bye, everybody. See you later.